This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. Welcome to The Tonic, your prescription for a healthier and happier life. Here's your host and publisher of Tonic Magazine, Jamie Busson. Hi, I'm Jamie Busson. I'm a former commercial litigator who used to weigh 242 pounds. When I was 38 years old, I lost over 50 pounds through a regimen of exercise and better nutrition. It took me a year to reach my goal, but I thought if a type A personality like me could do it, really anybody can. I'm still asking questions and learning about what it means to live a healthy lifestyle. Please join me on this continuing journey. Today, we'll discuss the important role of nutrition in managing type 2 diabetes with nutritionist Shannon Crocker. We'll learn what it's like to live with type 2 diabetes with diabetes educator Sherilyn Pinnerock. We'll talk about exercise and support of type 2 diabetes with fitness and rehab expert Dr. Stacey Irvine, DC. And lastly, we'll find out how mindfulness can be a tool to manage type 2 diabetes with mindfulness expert Tracy Sograti. Before we get to that, Here's your tonic quick shot of healthy headlines. While low-carb diets are often recommended for those being treated for diabetes, little evidence exists as to whether eating fewer carbs can impact the blood sugar of those with diabetes or pre-diabetes who aren't treated by medications. Now, according to new research from Tulane University, a low-carb diet can help those with unmedicated diabetes and those at risk for diabetes lower their blood sugar. Scientists at Northwestern University have uncovered the mechanism behind why eating late at night is linked to weight gain and diabetes. The connection between eating, time, sleep, and obesity is well known, but poorly understood, with research showing that overnutrition can disrupt circadian rhythms and change fat tissue. Lower immune and recurring infections are common in type 1 and type 2 diabetes. Researchers at Karolinska Institutet in Sweden now show that the immune system of people with diabetes has lower levels of antimicrobial peptide psoriasin, which compromises the urinary bladder's cell barrier, increasing the risk of urinary tract infection. Using urine, urinary bladder cells, and blood serum samples from patients, the researchers analyzed levels of psoriasin and other peptides necessary for ensuring that bladder mucosa remains intact and protects against infection. The findings were then verified in mice and urinary bladder cells with and without infection. That was your tonic quick shot. I'll be joined by Shannon Crocker in a moment, but first, a little bit of business. If you have type 2 diabetes, it might be time for a heart-to-heart with your own heart. There's no sugarcoating it. Type 2 diabetes affects more than just your blood sugar levels. It can impact other parts of your body, including your heart. If you have diabetes and a history of heart disease, there are medications, along with diet and exercise, that can lower your risk from dying from problems relating to your heart and blood vessels. Talk to your doctor today and visit myheartmatters.ca to learn more. Brought to you by two of Canada's leading pharmaceutical research-based companies. Shannon Crocker, MSCRD, is a food-living registered dietitian and professional home economist with over 20 years of experience in nutrition communications. With her passion for nutrition trends and consumer-friendly writing style, she sought after as an evidence-based strategist, nutrition writer, and content creator for food industry clients. Welcome to the show, Shannon. How are you? Hi, Jamie. Thanks so much for having me. I'm fantastic. How are you doing? I'm doing well today. 
So, our discussion today is going to center around nutrition for people who have type 2 diabetes. So, why is good nutrition so important for somebody living with type 2 diabetes? Well, you know, as a dietitian, of course, I would say nutrition is important for everyone. True. But it is especially important for people living with type 2 diabetes because a healthy eating pattern with nutritious foods and appropriate portions can really help someone with type 2 diabetes to manage their blood glucose levels, maintain a healthy weight, keep cholesterol in check, and manage health-related risks, in particular, heart disease. So are there heart-healthy foods, and how can they help manage diabetes in that context? Yeah, for sure. So heart-healthy foods are those whole, like, nutrient-rich foods that are minimally processed. And these foods are going to give you vitamins, minerals, antioxidants that protect your heart and also going to give you fiber, healthy fats, protein. And so, Jamie, what that means is eating plenty of plant foods like vegetables, especially those dark leafy greens, fruits, especially berries, for example, whole grains and legumes, which are like dried beans, peas, and lentils, as well as many protein-rich foods like nuts and seeds, lower-fat dairy, eggs, um, lean meat, or poultry. Is it fair to say sort of like the overriding principle is you're trying to get as much nutrition out of the foods you're eating so you don't have to eat as much food, that you're sort of maximizing the food nutritional value that you're taking in? Yeah, the intention really is to get the most bang for your nutritional buck, so to speak. So you want to go for foods that are really sort of those whole nutrient basic foods. You want to look for foods that are less processed or at least not ultra processed foods like, you know, the chips, the candies, the pop, those pre-made meals. Those are the sorts of foods that you might want to avoid. Okay. Does a type 2 diabetes diagnosis typically require a complete diet overhaul? Yeah, that's a great question. I think it's really normal that a lot of people would feel overwhelmed when they get a type 2 diabetes diagnosis and feel like, you know, they might be feeling overwhelmed, feel like they have to make a lot of changes, they might have questions. And I think it can be challenging to make changes to your diet. So it's really good, I think, to know it's a good piece of information to share that you don't need to overhaul your entire diet. And truly small shifts can really go a long way to improve your health. So I always suggest people to start off with small, simple swaps, like things, you know, that can make your favorite dishes more diabetes friendly or more heart health friendly. So think about things, Jamie, like switching your white bread for whole grain or switching sugary cereal and instead eating unsweetened muesli or unsweetened oatmeal. Or if you like to drink pop, instead drink sparkling water with a squeeze of fresh, you know, lemon juice, for example. Okay, so are there any other kind of swaps that you're looking at? Or are there foods? Are you of the mindset that like there are foods that are absolute no-nos and absolute yes-yeses? Or is it is it a more subtle approach? For me, it's a more subtle approach. My philosophy is that no food is off limits. Unless, of course, it's something, you know, that like you're allergic to it or it's gone right. bad. You yeah. know, it fell on the floor and the dog licked it. But there's <laughs> definitely foods that you should enjoy more often or foods you should enjoy less often. And maybe in smaller portion sizes, you might need to consider when and how you're eating them. So, for example, some of those foods that you might want to choose less often would be those sugary, highly processed foods that are going to give you really little nutritional value. So, right. you know, sugar-sweetened beverages like pop or you know, frothy flavored coffee beverages or salty snack foods and fried foods. Those are the kinds of foods that I would say you want to choose less often. They're not the foundation of your diet, if you will. And the more positive approach really for me is to focus on the foods that you want to be including in your diet. So think of it more as an addition versus a taking away. So you want to be eating more whole nutrient-rich foods like those veggies, like whole grains, you know, legumes, You want to be cooking more at home and making a plan for three regular meals a day. So that's sort of my philosophy is to look at 
you know, foods that you want to add in and not so much about foods that you have to avoid. But I suppose it depends on where you're coming from, right? I mean, before you're aware or if you're not, haven't turned your mind to sort of nutrition, you might be eating you know, ultra processed foods all the time, right? Like that may form a large part of what you're eating, in which case, you know, you're probably going to have to make some bigger changes, right? I don't think anybody really eats like that all the time, but I'm sure there's a few people that do. Oh, I'm sure there are people that do too. And I think you bring up a good point. Nutrition and an eating pattern has to be personalized. It has to be something that works for the individual. And so, yeah, some people are going to need to make bigger changes than others. I think that making big changes all at once for some people can seem completely overwhelming. And so those are the people who I would say, you know, just start with small changes. You know, let's take a look at breakfast. Like, let's see how we can swap up your breakfast. You know, right. if you like a sugary cereal, well, you know, let's swap in something like, a, like I said before, an unsweetened muesli or maybe a whole grain toast with some peanut butter, for example, or Greek yogurt with berries. Then there might be those people who, you know, just need to make a a few small changes. And so it really is a personal approach. Like, you know, if if you're okay with making drastic changes, big changes, and that works for you, well, then, you know, let's let's look at it from that angle. Let's focus a bit on some of the positives, as you said, and, and see if there's some advice we can give to help people make those better decisions. So to that end, are there specific fruits or vegetables that are more important for somebody who's on a type 2 diabetes diet? Yeah, so all vegetables and fruits are nutritious. You know, I would say yeah. this is the one area that many people, whether they have type 2 diabetes or not, fall short of. It's the veggies and fruits. So, you know, it's something we can all be focusing on. And I think it's a real great positive first step is to look at that vegetable and fruit intake. So there are some vegetables, though, that are going to be better choices for you as someone living with type 2 diabetes. For example, you might want to focus on more lower-carb vegetables and fruits versus some of those carb-rich veggies like potatoes and corn and peas. So some of those choices might be berries, like blueberries and raspberries. You know, those are packed with vitamins. They're filled with fiber, and they're lower in carbs. So that's that's a really great choice. Mm -hmm. I also recommend people eat dark leafy vegetables, if you can, every day, have a serving. So we're talking about, like, spinach, kale, arugula, collard greens. And dark leafy greens are low in calories and low in carbohydrates, but they're really packed with vitamins and minerals. So, again, that's something that I suggest you aim for every day. Cruciferous vegetables like broccoli, cauliflower, cabbage, these all contain compounds that might help reduce chronic inflammation. So they're a really great choice to have on a regular basis as well. Tomatoes, fresh or canned, as long as they're low sodium, those have some heart-healthy nutrients in them as well, including lycopene, which is an antioxidant. So those are some of the veggie choices that I would recommend people focus in on and fruit as well. All right. So while we're focusing on specific types of foods, let's shift our gaze to grains. Why are whole grains so nutritionally important? And what are some of your favorites? I have a few of my favorites, but let's hear yours. Okay. (laughs) So whole grains really are super nutritious. They provide heart-healthy B vitamins. They provide more fiber than refined grains. And that can help store blood cholesterol, and it can help to reduce risk for heart disease as well. The fiber in the whole grains helps to slow digestion. That means your blood sugar levels won't rise as quickly as they would have with refined grains. Yep. And that fiber also helps you to stay satisfied or fuller for longer. So that's, that's important as well. One of my favorites, honestly, is barley. I think it's highly underrated. It's a Canadian grain. And I think that it's got this great nutty flavor. Lots of people 
think about barley, you know, when they hear that, they think about beef barley soup probably, yep. where it's like these big squishy kernels of barley. Yep. But I really like to cook it just until it's kind of chewy. And then I add it to salads with lots of veggies or I use it for a side dish. And I guess my second one probably would be oatmeal, which of course, you know, lots of people know oatmeal for breakfast. Yep. But I also add it to smoothies. It's a great way to boost the satisfaction in a a veggie and fruit-based smoothie, and it, it makes it really creamy, and so it's a great way to get whole grains into a snack. Okay, so you stole my thunder a bit because I have. Oh, oatmeal, did I? Yeah, I have. I have oatmeal for breakfast every morning, and I make it in batches, and you know, no sugar added. So that's my jam. I'm with you. My tip is I use it as a thickener for chili. Oh, fantastic. So do you actually just put it in whole or do you grind it up before you put it in the chili? I put it in whole and it completely dissolves because, you know, you're, you're slow cooking chili. But if you want sort of like a thicker chili, and I do this if I'm making sort of like a white chili, a turkey chili, yeah. uh, it really binds everything together and, you know, it's good for you, right? So what could be wrong with that? I'm going to have to give that a try. If you make a great white bean turkey chili, I'll give it a try. Thanks that, for the tip. That's the precise one that I do. It's a white bean. It's a navy bean and, and turkey chili that I put the, so try it and get back to me and tell me how it works. Okay. <laughs> I will for sure. Thanks. <laughs> okay. So let's focus now on protein. Which proteins would you recommend? And are there any proteins that should be avoided? Yeah, that's a great question. So protein is really important for someone with type 2 diabetes because eating it at meals helps to moderate the release of glucose. So you're going to get a slower rise there. I recommend quality protein foods like legumes, which are dried peas, beans, and lentils. I suggest at least a couple times a week and having meals based on those. Nuts and seeds, fish, especially fatty fish like salmon or trout for those omega-3 fats. Lower fat dairy like milk or cottage cheese, tofu, edamame, lean fresh meats like we both just talked about turkey, for example. Eggs fit into that quality protein category. I think what I would recommend people avoid would be those ultra-processed meats like deli meats, salamis, hot dogs. Those are all high in unhealthy fat, they're high in sodium, and they've been linked with poor health. So that would be one that I would I would limit. Okay, so there's a phrase out there, and I think it gets abused a bit. It's superfoods, right? So yeah. I, I, and I know they exist, but probably not in the way people should be thinking about them. But are there, like, give me your top three superfoods that you think, like, are biggest nutritional bang for the buck, I guess. Yeah, so first off, I'm with you on the super food. It's a marketing term, but I do think there are some foods that are super. <laughs> yeah. A little bit nuanced. Yeah. Um, so let's go with my top three, you said? So, yeah. Okay, so top one, I think, would be beans, dried beans, peas, and lentils. Great source of fiber. The beans are going to help you slow down digestion, help reduce sudden spikes in blood sugar. You know, chickpeas, black beans, edamame are three that I enjoy on a regular basis. Mm-hmm. I would say second probably would be those dark, leafy green veggies. So the spinach, kale, arugula, collard greens, as I mentioned before, because, you know, as I said, they're low in calories and carbs, but high in vitamins and minerals, good for heart health. And my third one, I think, would probably be that fish, fatty fish. So for those omega-3 fats that have been linked with reduction of uh, heart disease risk, salmon, trout, sardines, I think would probably be the three in there that I would, that I would be my go-to most often. Fantastic. So let's shift gears. Imagine our listeners are going shopping now and you're going to give them a tip 
for how to conduct themselves. I have my own ideas, but I want to hear yours. So what would you recommend to somebody who's who's doing the shop, the weekly shop? Yeah. Okay. So first off, you know, having a plan is critical before you even get to the grocery store because Agreed. that way, it, you know, you know what you're going to buy and you can stick with your plan. Yep. Not only does it ensure you get those nourishing foods to make the meals that you want to make during the week, it's going to save you money because you don't end up throwing stuff into your cart that you don't need. But also, so that's first is making a plan. Also, we want to shop the outer aisles first and not only like I see a lot of advice saying only go to the outside aisle that's really too simplistic because there yeah. are lots of nutritious foods in the inner aisles but if you fill up your cart first with mostly whole nutrient rich foods you know looking like single or close to single ingredient foods that will help you make your meals and snacks do that first then hit the inner aisles and find there you know sort of those gems like the whole grains nuts seeds canned beans you know canned fish for example mm-hmm. i think that that would be my sort of two top things first you have to have a plan and second you know look for those whole foods over those packaged foods most often okay so you didn't quite steal my thunder this time but we're close so okay. I, so i we actually meal plan like on the day that I go, I do the shopping for the family. So we'll meal plan and plot out our dinners for the week. And then we start, I'll create a list by category, like fruits, vegetables, inner aisle stuff, and then dairy separately. Right. And then in that way, we know exactly what we're buying and there's less impulse buys, which is what I think you're getting at. And so we micromanage to the point where we know exactly what it is we're going to be eating. Number one. And number two, with respect to the aisle, I would agree with you, but I leave the vegetables and fruits to the end of the shop because then they don't get crushed with all the cans of beans and everything. So <laughs> that, that is a fantastic tip. There's nothing worse than like bananas at the bottom of the pile. Correct. That, you know, are all now brown by the time you get them home. Exactly. So I'm I'm slightly different than you. So we have time for one last question, and that is: Are there any websites or resources where people can go to learn more about diabetes friendly and heart healthy recipes? Yeah, for sure. So first off, I would say, if, you know, if you have type 2 diabetes or struggling to eat well, you can get personal advice from a dietitian. That would be sort of my top recommendation. Mm-hmm. Um, also, a website that I really love is carttotable.ca. It's a fantastic resource that it can help people who are living with diabetes kind of rediscover that joy of food. It's got some delicious diabetes-friendly recipes. There's some easy swaps that you can make. There's information on there about portion sizes and you know, even more grocery shopping strategies than we've just provided here today. So those would be sort of my two top tips in that that area. Fantastic. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. Oh, thanks, Jamie. It's my pleasure for sure. For more information about Shannon, visit shannoncrocker.ca. We have to take a short break, but when we return, we'll discuss what it's like to live with type 2 diabetes on The Tonic. I'd like to give a shout out to our new sponsor, Omega Alpha. This company is 100% Canadian-owned. Their team consists of allopathic and naturopathic doctors, nutritionists, researchers, and other scientific professionals, all led by their CEO, Dr. Gordon Chang. Formulations are created on their 40,000-square-foot facility located in Toronto. Omega Alpha uses only the highest quality ingredients to manufacture the most efficacious yet price-friendly nutraceuticals. For more information about Omega Alpha, visit OmegaAlphaInc.com. Welcome back to The Tonic, your prescription for a healthier and happier life. Here's your host and publisher of Tonic Magazine, Jamie Busson. Sherilyn Pinnerock is a patient living with type 2 diabetes and a diabetes and obesity nurse educator. 
She's an experienced speaker and presenter to healthcare providers and patients. She loves to expand her knowledge in diabetes and technologies, which allows her to attend numerous conferences globally. Welcome to the show. How are you? I'm good. How are you, Jamie? Good. I always find these types of interviews interesting because I think it really resonates with our listeners to sort of get a first-person account of what's going on. So let's talk a little bit about the diagnosis of your type 2 diabetes. Let me tell you, it was a shocker for sure. I got diagnosed probably when I was, uh, it was 1999. I was only about 22 years old. So I've been living with diabetes for over 24, 25 years now. Wow. Yeah. It's a big shocker. Yeah. So can you give us a little bit of context in the, in the circumstances? Like how did you come to realize that you had it and et cetera? So my parents are both type 2 diabetics. My mom actually was a diabetic. She got gestational diabetes from my brother. So she was on full-blown insulin when I got diagnosed, and then my dad was type 2. And I figured, okay, it's in my family history. I might as well go get it checked out at my annual checkup. And lo and behold, after getting my blood test results, the doctor calls me in, and she sits me down, and then she gives me my diagnosis of diabetes type 2. It was a shocker, definitely, for me. So it kind of like was like, I knew this was coming, but yet I didn't realize it was going to come this early. So you said you were shocked, but like, you know, after getting over the shock, like, how did it feel to you? Like, I mean, you knew there was a good chance that you could have it just because of the family history, right? But so when you say shock, was it more like, oh, now I have to deal with this? Is that what was going on? I guess that was how I was feeling. It was like, oh, no, now I have to deal with this for the rest of my life. I mean, I'm still so young, so this can't possibly be a type 2 diabetic at my age. Right. So I was like questioning whether the diagnosis was a real diagnosis, even though like I didn't really have the symptoms of the classic symptoms of being a diabetic person. But I I tested myself just because I knew I had that family history. So I was kind of in denial and like just sitting there like, okay, this is what the doctor told me, but is it right? You know, like, can it be this early on? So I was questioning myself. I was questioning my doctor. I was just questioning life itself. No, I would imagine. <laughs> because, I mean, yeah. yeah, I was like, I have to live with this for the rest of my life. And what do I do? Well, so what do you have to do? Let's talk a bit about that. So you, you have day-to-day responsibilities, personal responsibilities to manage your type 2 diabetes. Can you sort of walk us through what that looks like? So currently right now, like everything you have to think about, okay, is this food that I'm going to eat, is it going to bring up my blood sugars? i got to test my blood sugar every morning. i got to test my blood sugar how many times during the day. If I'm not feeling well, i got to test my blood sugar again. And then it's all the stuff that if I don't get enough sleep, my blood sugar goes crazy. We have any menstrual cycle changes. Our blood sugars go crazy. So, like, every single day, it's just, like, work itself being a diabetic. But i come to realize that I shouldn't let these disease overtake my life. Mm -hmm. I should learn to live with it and and let it be a partner in my life because, I mean, I have to live with it every single day and I shouldn't let it take over me. The beauty of this world that we have right now in diabetes, there's so many tools and so many things that we could do to actually live with diabetes and have less complications and less worries about, like, you know, having these fluctuations of having our ups and downs of blood sugars. So I'm just very thankful that, like, a milieu that really helps me to understand my diabetes. And actually, I could take that teaching and knowledge and then focus it on my patients, too, because I could understand where they're coming from. But, you know, it's a world where I feel like when I was diagnosed that I didn't have anybody accompanying me in my journey. Right. It was just like 
here's your diagnosis, you know, deal with it. This is what you have to do for the rest of your life. Hmm. Okay, so I'm ignorant. How do you know if you're experiencing low blood sugar levels? Well, I would totally tell my patients to, like, just check your blood sugars. Of course, yeah. Uh, Glucometers are, you know, available everywhere now. I mean, that's the best test. We'll get your blood work done. Go see your doctor. You know, ask questions. Don't wait till the last minute for things to happen. I mean, a lot of people don't find out they're having low blood sugars until, like, you know, it's too late. But uh, but, having an accident or something like that. I know that you're regularly monitoring your blood sugar, but like in the course of a day, right, you have ebbs and flows. So how does it manifest? Like, how do you know, like, what are the physical manifestations of low blood sugar? Like, how do you feel? How do I feel? Oh, honestly, it's like you feel like you got kicked by somebody. You have those feelings of like sweating, you know, blurred vision. You have the feelings of feeling hungry. Like you just want to eat everything. Sometimes I notice that I have like mood changes and then I'm like oh maybe I'm having a little blood sugar you know let me go test myself it's just like different things that you know sometimes you don't realize you're having a low right and then you have to check yourself and be like oh that's why I'm feeling a little crappy and the thing is like if we don't treat our lows what happens is that when I find for myself is that when I have a low blood sugar that you know the rest of my day is like off it takes like a beating to your system Right. Yeah. I would imagine, you know, this isn't something that you're dealing with alone. Your family must be impacted by this too, right? Correct. I mean, uh, I have like uh, my family, I've taught a lot of my family how to deal with low blood sugars. It's just, it's great because I have that support system in my family. But yet sometimes, you know, they've been diabetic for a long time that we forget certain things and we need to revise the education and the teaching because we're so used to doing our old habits. Right, yeah. So it takes a little training and just like taking back the family and teaching them about different things. You know, sometimes they forget too that we're all living with the same disease and then not only one person is living with it, but we all are. And uh, it's just, it takes a toll sometimes. I would imagine. I would imagine that there's sort of a mental health toll as well, right? It isn't just physical. It probably manifests. You, You mentioned your mood. How else does it manifest for you? Well, there are days when I just don't feel like doing anything just because like, uh, I mean, if I had a low blood sugar or if I had high blood sugars the day before, the next day I probably just don't feel like doing anything. I just want to, you know, just recover from having a low the day before or having the highs and lows. I mean, every day is so different. Right. And I mean, I feel like, you know, sometimes like you're always focusing. Okay, if I'm going to eat this food, how high is my blood sugar going to give? How many units of insulin do I have to give? There's just so many things you have to take into consideration. If I'm going to do exercise, is my blood sugar going to low? Do I need to take a snack? And, you know, like I said, I try not to let all those stuff try to let the disease take over my life. Because if I let it, then, you know... I think my mental health would actually be worse than it is right now because my only focus would be just treating the disease and not living with the disease itself. So that's the tool you use. It's how you approach it. It's your mindset is what you're saying, right? Correct. So how has COVID-19 impacted the treatment of of your type 2 diabetes? Well, I can say that I'm lucky because I'm a diabetes educator. I can always reach out to certain people. But, I mean, for my patients who didn't have anybody, it was just really hard for them. Luckily, we have tools online that we could have followed our patients from a distance to see their blood sugars, and we could actually help them adjust their treatments as needed 
from a distance. But, I mean, COVID-19 really, like, opened our eyes to how much sometimes people just felt all alone, like, dealing with their diseases itself. But I could say I was fortunate enough that I had that support system, and then I know I could reach out to certain people. So when I was diagnosed, like, I told you, I felt, like, all alone in this process. Right. But now that I'm in the other shoe, that I could help my patients out, I don't want to feel let them feel alone at this time, too. Is that sort of like a form of therapy for you, being able to help others? Is that making you feel more capable of coping with your own diabetes? I guess it does. I never looked at it that way, but I mean, I'm glad you kind of pointed it out because it does give me kind of therapy that knowing that my disease itself and my mental health could actually help other people too. All right, there we go. We've learned on the show. So what do you think the key lifestyle choices are that you would recommend to others and and the patients that you deal with that would help with type 2 diabetes? Well, type 2 diabetes, like obviously now we have a lot of medications that encompass a lot more than just diabetes. We have medications that deal with heart health. We have medications that deal with uh, renal protection too. So that's one of the good things that I love about having all these different treatments right now that we have so many tools and so many medications and I'm like always ask more questions like a lot of people come into the appointments and they feel like I'm not going to adjust my medications I'm only going to let the doctors do it especially if we are on insulin but we're trying to give you tools to actually take in charge of your disease itself because we're not always going to be there but we have to empower our patients to give them more knowledge to actually let them take care of themselves too at the same time and not just rely on us. Okay. We have time for one last question, and that is, what are some of the misconceptions and stereotypes that exist regarding those that have been diagnosed with type 2 diabetes that you see? Oh, that's a good question. I love when this question comes up because everyone, when they're like, oh my, you're diabetic, you know, you don't have a long lifespan to live, you know, Mm -hmm. you're going to be right away on insulin, especially if you're a type 2 diabetic. And I'm like, you know what, there's a lot of things these days now that prolong the time we're going to start you on insulin. I mean, we're seeing it right now in the whole like world that we have such great medications coming onto the market that prolong the time that we're starting insulin, even just one insulin a day. And there's so many things that are coming out that help us deal with our diabetes. Like we have sensors that we didn't, you know, people are testing their blood sugars eight to 10 times a day now, don't have to prick their fingers because we have sensors available now. Who knew that we could get this far in diabetes technologies and diabetes medication just in like the time I've been diabetic. It's incredible to see the advancements in technology and just the movement in diabetes itself. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show today and and sharing your experience. Well, thank you, Jamie. That was Charlene Pinnock. We have to take a short break, but when we come back, we'll discuss fitness and type 2 diabetes on The Tonic. Tired of lineups at your pharmacist? Why not try PharmaZ at the Zoomer store? Powered by the Health Depot, an Ontario-accredited pharmacy, PharmaZ offers a concierge approach to filling, refilling, and managing your prescriptions with free delivery anywhere in Ontario. To get started, visit zoomerstore.com and click on PharmaZ. And then click on the Circle of Care Pharmacy program for your free initial consultation with a clinical pharmacist. Don't wait. Go today. Medicinal mushrooms offer a multitude of health benefits, including immune support, improved energy, and stress reduction. Medicinal mushroom extracts from New Roots Herbal, hot water extracted, providing you validated potency so you get their full health benefits. 
Discover Reishi, Lion's Mane, or Resilience, a seven-mushroom blend. Find the complete selection of medicinal mushroom extracts from New Roots Herbal exclusively at quality health food stores. To learn more, visit NewRootsHerbal.com. To ensure the products are right for you, always read and follow the label. Welcome back to The Tonic, your prescription for a healthier and happier life. Here's your host and publisher of Tonic Magazine, Jamie Busson. Dr. Stacey Irvine, D.C. is the co-founder of Totem Life Science. The philosophy and identity of Totem have been greatly influenced by Stacey's love of athletics and her passionate belief that everyone will benefit from a healthy, active lifestyle in their own unique way. Through her work as a chiropractor and strength and conditioning specialist, Dr. Irvine's clientele ranges from beginners just starting out on an exercise program to elite and professional athletes looking for advanced rehabilitation and training program strategies. She's also a frequent guest on this show. Welcome back, my friend. How are you? I am great. Thank you. Happy to be here. So today we're doing something a little bit unique, and we've never really done anything like this before, and that is we're going to talk about fitness and exercise for a particular cohort, and that is people who have been diagnosed with type 2 diabetes. Are you up for the task? I am, and I'm very excited that you're doing this because I really think there's many things related to managing type 2 diabetes, but we all need to keep in mind how rapidly this is growing in our society, which is, you know, a really important thing that we have to be aware of. And the other thing that exercise can be used as a part of a prescription and part of the management, but we need to, you know, outline those parameters and how it works. So I think it's a really important conversation. Cool. So in your experience, what are the fitness goals of someone who's been diagnosed with type 2 diabetes? There is quite a few. It really depends on what stage they are at with their health journey. And it also depends on their age. You know, ultimately, in my opinion, the goal is that you are able to reverse the diagnosis in a way and that you're able to get yourself back into shape so that you're not as reliant on the medications and, you know, the other types of interventions that commonly are associated with type 2 diabetes. So we have seen that happen. You know, we've had patients who are kind of borderline where it's been a bit of a wake-up call and we said, okay, you have to make these major lifestyle changes with your diet and with your exercise. And we've seen them be able to go from a diagnosis to a stage where they're being monitored by their doctors, but the requirements for medication are much lowered. And then we're seeing people who have come to us kind of as a last resort, right? That, you know, they've had a very sedentary lifestyle They have this diagnosis. They're dealing with many other comorbidities, obesity being one of the big ones that sometimes can feel like a barrier to exercise. So in those cases, we're looking at things a little bit differently and and we're trying to say, okay, where do we start and how do we get, you know, some improvements here, knowing that the medications and things are going to be a part of their life probably for the rest of their life. What are the fitness challenges or risks for someone who's been diagnosed with type 2 diabetes? That's a great question. And I think the first thing to realize is that there are risks. Type 2 diabetes as a diagnosis means that you really have to be closely monitored by your healthcare team. There are some significant cardiovascular risks 
which again are dependent on what stage you're at with the disease. But I would never suggest that after a diagnosis of type 2 diabetes, you would just run out and start exercising on your own. Right. I think you need to, at the very least, have a cardiac stress test done to see, you know, how are things working with a certain level of exercise. And I think that you want to be working with a professional who is experienced in this type of exercise and experienced in this type of programming. Okay, so let's shift gears a little bit and talk about sustainable programs, because really that's what's necessary if you're trying to make lifestyle changes. So what makes a program sustainable, a fitness program? The first thing that we want to think about is, you know, there's a big emotional component to this, right? You get the diagnosis. In many cases, it's upsetting news. Yep. And it's also concerning for your families and, you know, the people that love you and the people that are in your everyday life. It can be something that you have to think about with your work life and how are you going to fit all this in and keep your stress down. There is a lot of major lifestyle changes that should happen when you receive this type of a diagnosis and when you want to make the most out of your health and, you know, doing the best job that you possibly can. So what we want to start thinking about is how can we design a program that seems not overwhelming, Yeah. right? So, so we want to start out slowly. We want to do everything safe. Yep. And we want to make sure that when you're starting out on this program, you're feeling supported. So I think there's many groups that you can talk to. I think you really want to think about that idea of who is my healthcare team? Right. Who am I getting good communication with? If I have a quick question, you know, who can I go to to ask? And in many cases, the fitness professionals are more accessible than, say, sometimes your GP. But I really think you need to think of it as a team. Yep. And to me, the biggest benefit is when you hire a fitness professional to help you that is willing to communicate with the rest of your healthcare team so that everybody's on the same page. And when I say communicate, it can be as simple as sending an email, right? Yep. And maybe the patient is the person that manages all those emails, but that's okay. These days it's much easier than it used to be. You know, we're all connected in many different ways. There's many apps that you can work with to help you with all this management and help you deal with your medical files. It's all electronic usually. So it's not hard, but you have to have a group of people willing to help you with that. Yeah, I would think one of the key issues is is making it sort of engaging so that you keep up with it, right? And also within somebody's wheelhouse. So what are some of the reasonable fitness expectations with somebody who's been diagnosed? Well, this is the exciting part is that when you start with an exercise program, you actually change the structure of your muscles and you improve their ability to basically manage glucose. So you make them more receptive to the, you know, the insulin that is actually coming through your body and you develop systems within your body through exercise that make the medications in many ways more effective. And that's very exciting that you can actually make those changes. And what that allows you to do is limit the amount of medication in many cases that you have to take. But again, you don't get to decide that on your own. Right. You start this program in a safe, effective way. And you understand that you're going to make body composition changes. You're going to improve your energy levels. 
Hopefully, in many cases, it's going to help you improve your nutrition because we all know that when you start exercising, in in most cases, you kind of are motivated to eat a little bit healthier. Hundred percent. And you know, you're thinking more like, how am I fueling my body because I'm going to go do a workout? But it is also important. You know, you said like, what would we start with? You need to start with things that you enjoy. Right. You know, I, I would never put someone on a program if they say I absolutely hate going to the gym. We'd say, okay, what's our other option? You know, we're going to get you some weights at home. We're going to get some things that you can do. We're going to go outside for walks. I was going to say, a good pair of walking shoes might be the most important purchase you're going to make, right? I think to keep in mind that just starting is so crucial. Just moving, just getting that blood flowing because even the blood flow is helpful. So it could be something as simple as going out for a 10 minute walk could be how you start. That's perfect. It could be having a couple of five pound weights sitting beside your couch on the TV that, you know, in commercials you get up and you do 10 bicep curls. That is a start. But to know that there's a cascading effect, once you start, everything starts to turn around a little bit and starts to look a little bit better. And I think that that's the exciting part of this. The biggest change that you will find to your health comes from just getting started, right? Like the harder part, the harder part comes later, amazingly enough, is when you're fit to get to that next level is almost impossible. But the changes are so rapid and apparent. Yes. That was my experience when I lost my weight. Like the the huge change just by starting was so significant. And you're right. And that is the hardest part. And and I always say to people, you know, like if you show up at the gym or if you're having a day where you're feeling very tired, that's normal. Just yeah. know that that's normal. We, yep. we all go through that and you just need to put your running shoes on and either step outside your door or, you know, I always say get on a piece of cardio equipment and say to yourself, if you happen to be at the gym and you're not feeling up to it, just say, I'm just going to walk today. Yep. And sometimes after you've walked for about 10 minutes, you start to think, okay, because you'll have vasodilation, you'll start to get a little bit more energy, and then you'll say, okay, I could go lift weights for 10 minutes maybe, yeah. right? But the first step is always the most difficult, but again, the most important and the one that you'll get the most impact from. Okay, so a little while ago you mentioned the key aspect of accessibility, like personal trainers are probably easier to access than maybe getting to see your doctor. What other benefits are there for somebody with type 2 diabetes to retain a personal trainer? I think that sometimes these things can be overwhelming because you're changing a lot of things at one time. So you're changing nutrition, you're changing medications. So The nice thing with having a personal trainer is that you can just shift some of that responsibility to them and provided that they're working with your team, you know that all you have to do is show up and they're going to take care of it for you and they're going to do the right thing. So then you don't have to worry about it and overthink it. You can just show up, do the work, get the results. And ultimately, that's what we would all love, right? We want results, but we want it to be as easy as possible. Time for one last quick question. If someone is diagnosed with type 2 diabetes and is not active, other than getting off the couch, what is the best first step that you would recommend? I would recommend starting to walk Yep. because that's going to strengthen your lower body and it's going to allow you to add some of those exercises. But even just getting out, getting a little bit, you know, the ligaments and everything kind of working for you, walking is the way to go, being out in nature. There's nothing beats that. I agree. I concur in spades. (laughs) Thanks so much for coming on the show today. My pleasure. We have to take a short break, but when we return, we'll discuss the role of mindfulness in type 2 diabetes protocols on The Tonic. 
Big Carrot is a worker-owned natural food market that's been committed to local, organic, non-GMO, and sustainable food systems since 1983. They're a one-stop shop offering produce, grocery, bulk, body care, and holistic dispensary. The juice and smoothie bars and kitchens serve up hundreds of healthy dishes and drinks daily. Building community is at the core of their vision, which they deliver through education, outreach, and giving. They want everyone to share in the goodness they offer. Visit their website for more information at thebigcarrot.ca. Welcome back to The Tonic, your prescription for a healthier and happier life. Here's your host and publisher of Tonic Magazine, Jamie Busson. Tracy Sograti has an eclectic background in molecular biology, psychology, and nursing. She practices psychotherapy and yoga therapy and has over 20 years of experience in leading classes, workshops, and events. She believes that the tools of mindfulness pave the way for a deeply meaningful life at any stage. You can find her at www.sogratiyoga.com, Sograti Yoga on Facebook, or at Tracy Sograti on Instagram. Welcome back to the show, my friend. How are you? I'm excellent, Jamie, and so excited for our discussion today. Yeah, so today we're covering type 2 diabetes, and uh, it's interesting because there's a nexus between mindfulness and mindfulness tools and and sort of the ability for people who have type 2 diabetes to follow their protocols. Absolutely. So what are the wellness challenges of somebody who's been diagnosed with type 2 diabetes? Well, I mean, I think the first one is that this diagnosis initially can be life-threatening. And so this triggers fears around mortality. And it also means from a lifestyle perspective that the individual has to become aware of their blood sugar changes often, you know, multiple times a day. And this, this also means that they have to make health-related decisions every single day that lead to shifts in relationship dynamics. So how the person, for example, connected to others before might change. If you think of, you know, what they're eating, their diet. So if a person is suffering with type 2 diabetes, they might have to change all of the food that they eat. They might have to decrease or discontinue using alcohol. And they might have the need to adopt a healthier lifestyle, which might look like significantly more exercise and time towards managing their symptoms than they've ever spent on their health before. And, you know, from a mental health perspective as well, and this is really interesting, I think, changes in blood sugar alone, so just aside from the diagnosis, just the changes in blood sugar can cause rapid shifts in mood or other mental symptoms like fatigue, trouble thinking clearly, and most prominently, anxiety. And when someone's living with diabetes, they can experience something called diabetes distress, which actually shares some of the traits of depression and anxiety, like living with mixed depression anxiety. So just having to manage all of those symptoms puts them at risk, you know, for lower quality of life or thinking patterns, which, you know, where their self-concept and their self-identity is so changed from what it was before that they can really negatively view themselves. So, you know, be highly self-critical. And, you know, as a result, people who are living with type 2 diabetes, they're twice as likely to live with depression, anxiety, and disordered eating. Wow. 
Okay, I didn't know that. Yeah, 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 no. Twice as likely, pretty mind-blowing. Yeah, it's amazing how the diagnosis of that one specific ailment can impact your life on so many different levels. But it sounds like mindfulness might be a very helpful tool for somebody who's struggling with this. You know, it is. I was surprised. So, you know, obviously I've drunk the Kool-Aid of mindfulness right? Yeah. Um, and, and I'm into it. But in preparing for this interview, I wanted to really look at the research directly between mindfulness and diabetes. And what the researchers have found is that it's very effective at reducing the impact of biological psychological and the social impact of a diagnosis with type 2 diabetes. Hmm. And so from a biological perspective, the practice of mindfulness, and this pretty much blew my mind, I'm not going to lie, it specifically helps to reduce stress and sympathetic tone while increasing parasympathetic activity. So what does that actually mean to us? And what it means is it decreases inflammation. And when our body is inflamed, our blood sugar goes up because we need the energy to fight inflammation. And so the practice itself overall systemically decreases inflammation, which is just wonderful. And and I know even working previously in hospitals, you know, when someone was living with type 2 diabetes, they would come in with all kinds of other problems like with blood vessels, etc., because of this, you know, large-scale inflammation. Right. But also mindfulness can help improve body weight, glycemic control and blood pressure. And and when we talk about, you know, specific techniques, I'll discuss how we do that. And from a psychological perspective, the practice of mindfulness, what it does is it decreases emotional reactivity. And so it helps these people, you know, who are living with this huge change because, you know, if you think living with diabetes is the, the first intervention, of course, is changing diet. Right. And we are social creatures and we connect by eating with other people. Right. And so that can feel emotionally very threatening to have that whole part of your life, which takes up, I don't know, a third of your day, maybe, mm-hmm. to change. So with mindfulness, they can really develop a more balanced perspective and decrease the anxiety and depression that we talked about earlier. But on top of that, there's been a demonstrated link between mindfulness and less substance use and abuse and improved coping skills, right? So if I have to check my blood sugar X number of times a day, I have to exercise in the morning, I have to eat a healthy diet, I have to get more sleep because sleep deprivation is associated with increased blood sugar, then I'm more open to doing those social skills. And from a social perspective, there's these increased health-seeking behaviors as well as, you know, when we're mindful, right, and if mindfulness is awareness of the present moment, acceptance, a compassionate and a loving-kindness attitude towards ourselves, then we will tend to connect with supportive others. But also, there's a decreased perception in the stigma of being diagnosed with type 2 diabetes. And what that's led to, and this is the other thing that I was like, wow, they did a study that showed that mindfulness-based stress reduction courses for people living with type 2 diabetes actually improved productivity and there was less loss of work. Wow. Right? Yeah. That's amazing. That's right, buddy. Yeah. Okay. So how does mindfulness help in the context then? Like, how does it actually do it? Yeah. Yeah, I know. And, and this is, I think, what's actually relevant to people. So we know that it works. We know that it works on many levels. But what is it that actually makes it work? And the first piece is increased awareness of both your internal and external environment. And 
So mindfulness promotes that kind of, you know, sitting down, looking at what's happening inside my body. And Mm -hmm. in this case, tracking blood sugar, right, is part of what you're suddenly tracking. But the quality of mindfulness that that is taught is curiosity, openness, acceptance, self-kindness. And so whenever you're looking at your internal symptoms, you're approaching yourself, you're practicing approaching yourself with that attitude. And then it's also increased awareness of your external environment. So when I do X, what happens to my blood sugar? What happens to my choices? And what are the consequences that I have to live with? And just doing a simple practice every day will increase that awareness and that attentional control. Hmm. That promotes insight, right? So insight into the relationship between events, thoughts, feelings, behavior, and consequences, which, you know, this is sort of a sidebar on my end, I think gives people a greater sense of control and autonomy in living, you know, with this new condition. I agree. I I would think the hurdle would be that it would feel so overwhelming to do all these new things. You would think, okay, I'm going to cede responsibility to somebody else, right? Because I can't handle this. Whereas, whereas I I think what you're saying is mindfulness gives you sort of the license to take control over. And I expose the ability to take responsibility for those things that really will manifest in a longer life, right? Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, I want to speak to something you just said because it's important. So you just spoke to the overwhelm of, oh, my goodness, I'm suddenly being asked to do all of these things that maybe I'm unfamiliar with. And because mindfulness teaches, okay, move from one present moment to the next present moment, right? So yeah. it's moment by moment by moment, rather than thinking about things like, you know, what I have to do for the rest of the day or how is this going to impact the rest of my life or how is this going to impact all my relationships, which is, it was just that all or nothing, you know, unhelpful thinking style right. is we're taught to practice landing. Okay. What does my body need in this moment right here? And then we move to the next moment. And so it does become less overwhelming. Okay. So we have time really for one more question and that is which mindfulness tools do you think are applicable in these circumstances? Like what do you think would be helpful for somebody to apply? Yeah, so the research shows the Mindfulness-Based Stress Reduction Program, which is an eight-week program, has fantastic results for getting, you know, for all of those things that we've talked about so far. Mm -hmm. And, you know, any of the listeners can just literally just Google Mindfulness-Based Stress Reduction, or MBSR, Mm -hmm. which this eight-week program takes you through how to practice mindfulness with that attitude that I already discussed and how to engage in gentle exercise that will also really facilitate, you know, that pacification of the nervous system. But the other two things, so say you don't have the time for that or that feels too overwhelming. Mm -hmm. The other two things that I would do are focused meditation, and that looks like just sitting for three to five minutes a day and practice focusing on your breath to the exclusion of all other things. And then the second thing would be mindful eating. And it's super simple. Mindful eating is just sitting down with your food, no other distractions, so no screens, no books, taking one bite, putting down the fork, chewing the food fully, feeling the sensation, tasting the food. And then once you've swallowed, you pick up your fork and take another bite. So those three things would be my right off the bat, you're sure to get results, you're going to experience the results quickly and start to see the benefits that we discussed in our talk today. 
Fantastic. I knew you'd be a brilliant addition to this show. Thank you so much for coming on today. My total pleasure. Thanks to all my wonderful guests, Shannon Crocker, Sherilene Pinnerock, Stacey Irvine, and Tracy Sograti. And thank you all for listening to The Tonic. You can listen or download this episode as a podcast with full show notes, contact information for our guests, and links at thetonic.ca. To find out more about the show, you can always follow us at It's The Tonic on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. For great articles by amazing health and wellness writers, be sure to pick up your copy of The Tonic magazine. The November-December issue is available free on racks at over 100 locations across the GTA and delivered with the Globe and Mail to home subscribers in Toronto, west of Victoria Park. Or you can visit our new website, thetonic.ca. If you're interested in providing feedback or suggesting topics for the show, you can always email me at jamie at thetonic.ca. On our next show, we'll discuss the health and wellness issues that are important to you. Until then, this is Jamie Busson wishing you a healthy and happy week. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.